Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. I'm Cindy Yu. As Boris Johnson prepares to holiday in Scotland, I ask, can he stop Scottish independence? We also talk about just why bats have so much pandemic potential. And at the very end, since foreign holidays are a little difficult this year, is it time to bring back the Great British Holiday Camp? First up. Poll after poll after poll is showing a surging support for Scottish independence. So can Boris Johnson stop it? And what do unionists need to do? Alex Massey asked the question in this week's cover piece, and he joins me down the line now, together with Angela Haggerty, journalist and commentator on Scottish independence. So Alex, for listeners who are not in Scotland, the surge in support for Scottish independence may be hard to understand. Can you illustrate just how powerful the surge has been? Well, I mean, the simplest way of doing that is to remind people that six years ago in the independence referendum in 2014, the result was 55% of people voted against independence and 45% voted in favour. We now have three or four different opinion polls over the last month, which suggest that in broad terms, that result has been flipped on its head, that you now have something approaching 55% of people supporting independence and only 45% favouring the union. And as I say, this is multiple polls now over the last month or so. So it is now in in journalistic terms and and in actual terms, indeed, a bona fide trend. You know, and this is the context in which Boris Johnson is is holidaying in Scotland uh, later this month. And, you know, it is now quite clear that for the time being anyway, momentum is very much with the SNP and independence supporters. And it is unionism that has to answer the questions that justify its own future rather more seriously rather more thoroughly than uh, supporters of independence have to make the case for independence. And that, again, is an area where the situation has rather flipped from what it was three, four, five, six years ago, when it was the supporters of independence who had to make the case for independence. And and unionism could really just rely on on the status quo and say, well, it's fine. Uh, Well, it's quite clear now that a majority of people in Scotland, for the time being anyway, think that the status quo is not fine. Angela, what do you think has changed that's contributed to the surge? Uh, well, I think strangely, uh, the coronavirus has probably been quite a big factor in it. I think the SNP would have been hoping or expecting that the Brexit vote would have been the catalyst for the polls to be moving. It turned out that it wasn't really. Things largely remained the same. But the COVID situation, I think, has done something that's quite important for the independence movement and that it has allowed the public to trust the Scottish government in a different way. So we're dealing with a crisis here of huge magnitude, a global crisis. And one of the things I think that the SNP has always wanted is for people just to believe that Scotland can govern itself. And because we are now showing that we can and you know we we can take a position on something in Scotland that appears to be markedly different, even if you, you could say in the detail it maybe hasn't been from Westminster, then I think that that is showing the public that that we can do it, basically. Scotland can handle itself. And that, I think, is a big hurdle that the independence movement wasn't quite able to get over. It's that, you know, famous saying in Scotland of too wee, too poor, too stupid. And it reflected a mentality that Scots had that they just didn't really quite believe in themselves. But Angela, if you look at the, um, whether it's excess deaths or the care homes situation in Scotland, or indeed the economy, Scotland has hasn't done that well compared to Europe or indeed the world. 
But I think it is it, partly some of this is just down to uh, Nicola Sturgeon, who has, let's face it, been knocking it out of the park when it comes to communication. You know, she's positioned herself as a, a leader, as a real leader, and she's got the trust of the public in her. So I think another thing with the pandemic is that it's such an unprecedented, unexpected thing to happen that I think the public is maybe a little bit more forgiving of some mistakes or bad decisions that may have been made. Nicola Sturgeon's always at pains to say that she takes the best decision she possibly can based on the evidence she has at the time. And I think the public believe her. And the SN, I mean, despite even the exam results fiasco, which was really, you know, terrible in Scotland, it was a massive U-turn after Nicola Sturgeon and Education Secretary John Swinney had initially tried to defend it. Um, normally that would kind of damage your standing, but even that doesn't seem to be doing anything. The SNP's popularity is through the roof. Nicola Sturgeon's approval ratings are through the roof. And it really feels as if, it, you know, as Alex said, it's up to unionists now to make a case for why Scotland can't just go out and do things by itself. And that's where I think that they're going to struggle because we've had years since the Scottish independence referendum and I think the only thing we've ever really had is some very weak proposals from the Labour Party about federalism. But you you need a four-nation approach to something like that. It's just very hollow. I mean, what is unionism today? What does it mean? What does it represent? These are big, big questions for unionists and answers just don't really seem to be for forthcoming so you know I, I, I kind of pay attention to you know uh, people like Professor uh, John Curtis who analyses uh, polls and you know gives an idea a, a very good idea of uh, trends and things that are likely to happen and and you know he even he seems to be starting to make uh, make noises that this is probably going to be the independence movement's you know campaign to lose should another referendum come because they've really put themselves into a fairly strong position it could get stronger yet with Brexit on the the horizon you know we've got the Scottish parliamentary elections in 2021 as well the SNP I'm sure will again put independence in its manifesto which it has for every election since 2014 um, and if they win yet another mandate then I don't really see how Westminster can feasibly deny a second referendum if the polls start pushing further towards 60% if they do try and deny it with mandates like that then I think we're into some uncharted territory. Alex, how much of this is about personalities? Angela mentions Nicola Sturgeon and how communicative she's been during all this. On the other side of that, of course, is Boris Johnson's deep unpopularity. Well, yes, perhaps, although (laughs) it is partly about personalities. It's also about longer running uh, demographic trends uh, and certain structural things which give the SNP and the nationalists a significant advantage. For instance, uh, this morning's uh, edition of The Times has further details on its opinion poll this week and so on and it shows that that people in Scotland think that the Scottish government has done an excellent job on protecting the economy, protecting jobs, supporting workers through the pandemic. Now of course most of what the Scottish government has been able to do on these things has been take advantage of the furlough scheme implemented by Rishi Sunak at the Treasury and various other UK government schemes but in Scotland because this is a good thing credit for it is given to the Scottish government and the Scottish Parliament in the same way as almost anything that is deemed to be below par substandard or deplorable in one way or another blame for that is often shunted down to Westminster whether it's a a reserved matter, a Westminster responsibility or not. So it's a, one of these sort of coin tosses where heads I win and tails you lose 
as far as the sort of relationship between the Scottish government and the and the UK government is concerned. Mm. And Alex, in, it's all the rage in Westminster at the moment to theorise that Scottish independence is not such an attractive notion anymore because it economically doesn't make sense. Can you run us through some of those hard-headed uh, arguments? Sure. I mean, you know, it is certainly true that large parts of the prospectus that the SNP offered and the Yes movement offered in 2014 no longer exist as credible propositions. The questions on currency, on the economy um, and, and much else beside remain unanswered. But these are not the questions that are uppermost in people's minds at present. It is true that Brexit, in one sense, complicates the technical aspects of, of life after independence. You know, yes, a half hard border on the Tweed and the Solway could have very significant uh, effect on, on, on Scottish business. Most Scottish exports are sold in England, uh, and so there is an obvious difficulty there. At the same time, however, Brexit is exemplary. It, it also strengthens the political case for independence. Uh, and one of the things that Brexit taught us was that politics and sovereignty and questions of identity can be more important than questions of finance, economics, and the technical detail. You know, all of which will be sorted out later and it will all be fine and for the best. You know, it's the sort of same thing that we've been assured about vis-a-vis Brexit for years and the same thing with the same pattern will hold for Scottish independence. And so while the technical problems and the fiscal problems in terms of an immediate and significant deficit each year are, are real... They're not uppermost in people's minds and they're not what's driving the argument. And, uh, you know, again, if you voted for Brexit, you should be able to understand, uh, at least on a theoretical level, many of the arguments for, for Scottish independence, because as a matter of rhetoric, they're very similar. Angela, aren't these economic concerns pretty real? I mean, when you look at Scotland's deficit, which is much higher than uh, EU members would want their exceeding members to have, you know, how, how is Scotland, an independent Scotland, going to overcome those economic challenges? Well, but that that's not the the question in the independence uh, debate is, uh, I mean, there's going to be different proposals as to how Scotland is going to be able to do that. The SNP will have its proposals, different groups within the independence movement will have proposals. And as I say, what you need to do is get the public to a point where they believe that it can be done, even if they don't understand the detail of how it can be done. Because we're asking big economic questions here and, you know, we're not all economists. Not everybody's going to have the ability to understand this. So it's all down to communication and how effective the independence movement can be with that. The independence movement is very good at selling a vision. You know, if you vote for independence, this is the kind of country that you could live in. You could live in the kind of country that you want to. It will be up to us. We will shape it. Unionism doesn't offer that prospect. And I don't really know what it can offer in place of that that's going to be more persuasive. If the indie movement can come up with some some really good stuff economically uh, things on currency if they can if they can really grasp that this time better than they did the last time then i think we're going to be heading towards a yes vote yeah i mean if you if you make up the numbers then you know they can say anything that you want and and there's going to be an element of that is going to be required um by but by you know alex sort of both sides, but because both the sides are going to accuse each other of that the the, the 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 thing that you have to do is cut through the noise Sure, sure, sure. But it doesn't alter the fact that the first decade of an independent Scotland, if it ever happens and so on, is going to be an extremely difficult uh, decade. Now, that's fine. Mm. It might well be worth it in the long run. It's not to say that Scotland is too poor to be an independent country, merely that it would start off as a uh, as a materially poorer place than it is right now. And that that, that, that is, is, is largely true, I'm afraid. Now, 
the point is that, that, that unionism has to have something more in its arsenal than just a calculator. It's, you know, one of the other problems for unionism at the moment is a gathering appreciation, a gathering sense, I believe, that a lot of people feel that independence is going to happen eventually anyway. Now, if people absorb that and that sort of sinks in, then it becomes very much easier to, to both vote for it and, and indeed to, to then sort of say, well, if it's going to happen anyway, we might as well get on with it. And so that sense of inevitability is a very powerful force in politics. And, and that, it seems to me, is, is one of the underappreciated but most significant strengths that the nationalist movement has at present. Now, of course, things can change. You know, um, something may turn up. Um, uh, Nicola Sturgeon may not be around forever. But when you go through these sort of lists of things that could save unionism or help unionism and so on, you, you find that they are frequently conditional or hypothetical. They require a combination of factors to come into play at the same time. And while not impossible, these things seem you know, increasingly unlikely at present to come to the rescue of, of unionism. Well, Alex, as you say at the end of your piece, have a nice holiday, Prime Minister. Alex and Angela, thanks very much. 12 weeks for £12. Subscribe to The Spectator for this excellent deal and get a £20 Amazon voucher at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Next, as once in a lifetime as coronavirus has seemed, journalist Mark Honisbaum has written in this week's issue about why the next one is just around the corner. It's also the topic of his recent book, The Pandemic Century. He joins me on the podcast now together with Peter Daszak, ecologist and president of the EcoHealth Alliance. So Mark, reading your book, uh, one of the things that stood out to me was just how much pandemic potential nature had in store for us. Indeed, you write about the 10 pandemics that we've experienced in the last century alone. Well, yes, I mean, you know, there, there have always been pandemics and in all likelihood there always will be. So it's no surprise that pan pandemics have occurred with regularity and, you know, we should fully expect them to recur again. But of course, what's concerning about the modern period, so my book is really looking at what I call the period, the modern period when we've seen pandemics. And I use that in a very specific meaning. So pan there've always been pandemics. There were pandemics in the 14th century. But if you go back to, you know, the medieval period, it took an awfully long time for, you know, a new pandemic virus that might have emerged in Mongolia or, you know, the steppe country of Eurasia to traverse the sort of caravan trade routes and, and get into the Middle East, and then Europe, um, and eventually maybe, you know, cross the oceans to um, the United States. But since the 1890s, with the advent of um, uh, steamship travel, you know, so reducing the amount of time it takes for an ocean liner to cross the Atlantic, but also railways and then coming into the early 20th century cars and now international jet travel. You know, the world has become much more interconnected globally uh, and a pathogen that emerges on the other side of the world can be anywhere within 72 hours. And Peter, a lot of this comes from bats. Um, I didn't realise until reading Mark's piece that a fifth of all mammal species on the planet were bats. Can you give us an idea of the pandemic potential of bats in general? Yeah, it's unexpected to a lot of scientists too that bats turn out to be so important as reservoirs for pandemics. You know, if we look just at coronaviruses, there are a couple of coronaviruses circulating in the human population that have been there for centuries. When you trace back the genetic code of those, it looks like they're from bats as well. So the spillover happened in the 13th century, the 18th century. And, and these, these viruses, just like COVID, get into uh, the human population and stick. 
Now, why are they coming from bats? Well, one-fifth of all mammal species are bats. People don't appreciate that, really because bats aren't visible to us. They fly at night. We don't see them. Uh, we know they're out there somewhere. We, we don't realize how many are out there. The, the biomass is incredible. If you go to um, Southeast Asia and, and you know, sit by a river at night with a, with a street lamp, you'll see bats flitting across all night long, all different sizes and shapes, eating insects. And if you go to a cave in, in South China, the limestone um, countryside there is riddled with caves. Each of them has bats, multiple species, often thousands, tens of thousands. And they're, they're there, they're flying at night over people's houses, and we're getting exposed in ways we don't even realise. And Mark, as you write, the nearest relative of SARS-CoV-2, the current one we're dealing with, uh, is one that was isolated by Wuhan scientists um, from one of these South China caves. So is that supporting evidence to say that this current pandemic came from a Chinese lab? No, uh, it doesn't support that at, at all, because we know from, uh, I mean, well, perhaps Peter could say this better than I can. I mean, he's very well, well versed in it. Um, but my understanding of the studies that have been done on the genome of that virus is, although it's the most closely related bat virus to SARS-CoV-2, the virus of COVID-19, uh, it's still quite a big divergence, a 3.8% uh, genetic divergence with SARS-CoV-2 is equivalent to you know many decades of evolutionary change. Theoretically, yes, it is possible that that virus could have somehow been manipulated in a laboratory and um, other genes could have been added or subtracted from it. But there's no evidence that that happened. On, indeed, the Chinese scientist uh, who uh, runs the laboratory has said that they didn't even culture this virus, never mind try and amplify it uh, and, and change its nature. But I think maybe Peter could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you really want to know the origins of the virus, the way to do that is to, you know, I think the, the, the equivalent is in the US legal system. You know, we have criminal cases and civil cases. The criminal case requires proof beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, the civil case requires a preponderance of evidence. If you're looking to the origin of a virus to say, where did this come from? You've got to look at the evidence and you've got to really do the civil case approach. What does the preponderance of evidence tell you? And in the case of SARS-CoV-2, there is a huge amount of evidence that that clade of viruses is very diverse. It's found in bats that are extremely abundant and common in South China that people are hunting and eating. They're digging bat guano out. We've got evidence that there is a previous exposure to bat virus. The, the exposure is actually quite significant in some communities. And then if you look at the evidence for it leaking out of a lab, well, it wasn't there. It wasn't an isolate in a lab. The RATG13, the closest relative, is sufficiently different to not be SARS-2. They somewhere share a common ancestor many decades ago. And there's just no evidence for it. So again, the preponderance of evidence says it didn't come out of a lab. And I think the other issue we have with a lot of this is that people... You know, the, the public and, and politicians look to scientists to, in the wrong way, they say, we're going to do the criminal case. We're going to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this came from a bat. We're going to show the exact bat, the exact patient zero, when it happened and how that person then traveled to Wuhan. It's not like that. Those people are, are out there somewhere or maybe they died. Um, it may never be possible to trace that back. So we're always going to be left with what does the evidence say? And I think it's cut and dried, really. Mm. 
Can I just quickly interject here, Cindy, um, thinking about, you know, people who may have studied philosophy. Really, there's a principle called Occam's razor, which is, you know, when you have complicated facts, you should privilege the simplest explanation, right? So, I mean, as Peter's explained to me and countless times, we, we know that these spillover events are occurring all the time in nature, right? So there are lots and lots and lots of opportunities for these viruses that start as viruses of bats to get into human populations. And that's a a lot less complicated and more likely pathway than cooking up some, you know, very complicated conspiracy theory that involves all sorts of people doing cloak and dagger things and also putting themselves at great risk of getting infected. With no real motive, you know, I mean, why would you create a dangerous virus Some people point to China's export figures now to show that China is getting out of this much better than others. There's there's been quite a lot of that sort of journalism. uh, And at some point you're looking and say, why are people so suspicious of China that they want to put that narrative across? And ultimately, it feels like it's just driven by racism. It's driven by um, an old-fashioned, anti-communist, basically racist trope. is the same racism that drives the people eat bats in soups. That's disgusting why they're doing that. Whereas we eat, you know, cow's intestine and uh, pig's heads and kidneys in the UK. Okay, so so let's assume that, that people were nefariously designing viruses to take over the world. It's a ridiculous fantasy. Why would you take a 20% different virus and tinker with it when you've got SARS? You know, SARS is in labs around the world and there's no vaccine to SARS. There's no uh, known effective drug against SARS, just like there isn't against COVID-19. So um, it, it, it's, it's a flight of fancy, it's preposterous and it's illogical in the extreme. So, Mark, speaking of SARS, this is not the first pandemic that I've lived through because I was in school in China when SARS in 2003 was um, sweeping across China as well. Is it fair to think that these things tend to come from China? Is that an illusion or because it is accounting for a fifth of the world's population? Or is it something about these spillover events that tend for it to happen in somewhere like China? Well, I mean, that's a very difficult question to answer, actually. So I'm just speaking as a historian, you know, when I think <clears throat> of, you know, the big pandemics of uh, the, the 20th century and, and previous centuries. So if we go back to the, the previous pandemic to this, it was not from China. It was uh, the swine flu that emerged in Mexico and Southern California in 2009, right? Prior to that, of course, there was the SARS outbreak in 2002. That definitely originated in China, in Guangdong. But if we go back, when what was the next biggest pandemic? It was HIV AIDS, right? That started in Africa, um, as far as we can tell. But I hand over to Peter to say whether there might be ecological reasons why uh, China... Um, yeah. we've, we've analysed the origins of the, of the last 500 or so beginnings of pandemics. You know, HIV is just one of many, many spillover events where a, a pathogen gets from wildlife into people and either does or doesn't spread. The, the driver of the spillover, the initial outbreak, the initial expansion of, of a new disease tends to be um, human population density. So places where people live in, in dense populations that are growing, that are encroaching into wildlife habitat, that are taking livestock with them and creating these interfaces through which pathogens trickle over. 
And now that's definitely happening in China, but it's also happening in South Asia, Central West Africa, Latin America. It's also happening in Europe and the US. And we have our own emerging diseases. If you plot all these out and then un remove the underlying bias, because there are more people working on them in some countries, so you get more reports. So once you tease that out, you do see that some places are hotspots for emerging disease. Southeast Asia is one, but so is Central West Africa, so is Latin America, so is Europe. I mean, we get a lot of foodborne infections, a lot of uh, antimicrobial resistance that emerges. They're products of what people do, um, either to the environment or, or to our own structures like livestock intensification or urbanization. We drive this contact interface that drives an increase in diseases. So you can certainly predict that and you can... If you do it right, you can actually prevent it. And that's one thing that people are trying to do now to look at that, those underlying drivers and try and reduce them. Mm. Peter, that was going to be my next question. How do we prevent the next one? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think it's really, really, um, it's going to happen. I think this time we have enough momentum and people realising why this disease emerged. COVID-19 began as a bat virus. That's pretty clear. Um, SARS-CoV-2 is, is a bat virus almost certainly. Um, it probably spilled over in South China where there's a lot of encroachment, a lot of development, and there's an in intense network of wildlife trade that either the virus spread through animals among or through people who, who have a social network in that wildlife trade. Um, and then you've got globalized air travel on top of that. So all of those things can be looked at as a way to reduce risk. What we shouldn't do in the future is wait for them to happen and then try and respond. That's not a good strategy. And we're still waiting for a vaccine now. The time between discovering a new pandemic virus like H1N1 and getting enough vaccine, even for H1N1's swine flu, where we have prototype vaccines, it still was too slow to satisfy demand. So how do you, how do you control this? Well, we, we need better drugs and vaccines. We need drugs and, and vaccines that, that are broad-based, that don't just attack one pathogen that we know about, but also all the relatives of that pathogen. We secondly, we need to discover all the relatives of those pathogens. We estimate 1.7 million unknown viruses on the planet. We only know a few thousand. Mm -hmm. um, why aren't we doing a better job of finding out what our existential threats are out there? It, that's a mistake. And then, you know, we need to work with communities on the front line in rural areas, in the emerging disease hotspots, they're the first to get infected. They're, they're the people who are still doing the things that drive risk, like um, hunting and eating wildlife, like um, going into bat caves to dig out guano to spread on their crops, um, or just living close to wildlife. And then finally, we've got to, we've got to work on the consumption patterns that drive all of this. And we're, we're um, a part of that problem too. So if you think about the fashion industry and fur trims that have become very fashionable again, many of those fur trims are from um, farm-raised mammals in Chinese and Russian farms that are known to carry coronaviruses. Um, if you think about palm oil, palm oil is the major driver of deforestation in Southeast Asia, which is a major driver of pandemic risk. Mm -hmm. We're the consumers of those products we can have our role in um, reducing risk as well. I think there's a whole series of things we can do to, um, to, to get out of the pandemic era. Mark and Peter, thanks very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. 
and we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And last, as tens of thousands of British holidaymakers worry about their foreign holidays, Reverend Steve Morris writes in this week's issue that maybe it's time to revive the British holiday camp. He joins me on the podcast now, together with historian Catherine Ferry, who's an expert on all things holiday camp. So Steve, your piece is campaigning for the return of these camps. Can you give us your pitch? Yeah, I mean, the holiday camp was had a number of advantages. The, the first one was the sheer incredible quality and variety of the entertainment. I mean, you know, we really do need entertaining now. And looking back on the time when I used to go there, I'm astounded by the, the quality, really, of that. And that was such a great, uplifting thing. But mainly, my main pitch is that they were about community. When you went to the holiday camp, you were part of a team, you, they made different houses, you competed against each other. And these days, if you go to, say, centre parks or something, it's all atomised. It's the family or a, or a family group atomised, whereas holiday camps were about a sense of togetherness. And I mean, goodness me, don't we need that right now? And you'd also talk about the life skills that you personally learnt from holiday camps. Yeah, yeah I did. You know, I, Before I was a vicar, back in the 80s, I was trying to be a pop star. Don't... <laughs> Don't ask. But anyway, my first singing was uh, was there. I got up and, and, and sang, and I was really, I was really, really impressed with that. I, I was terrified of, of I love cricket. I was terrified of the ball, and uh, we had some coaching there. And I, goodness me, I actually managed to become a fairly decent cricketer. And there are so many other things. I just learnt stuff. But mainly, I look back on holiday camps as a place of utter joy. And I mean, I, if there's one thing I know that we're we're missing, I'm certainly missing at the moment, is that deep sense of comfort and joy. And Catherine, briefly, can you run us through the rise and fall of the holiday camp? Yeah, sure. I think the the community element goes way, way back. So the first holiday camp was set up in the 1890s on the Isle of Man. It was only for men at that time, and you had to be teetotal because it was a sort of evangelising, church-based holiday camp. But absolutely crucial to its appeal and to its ongoing success was the fact that there was this camaraderie, that all these people came as strangers and they shared tents and they took part in competitions and they were all in the dining hall together. And this sense of community, this kind of camp song that you joined in with, that was there from the very outset. And actually, it's no coincidence then that the next kind of organisations to take up holiday camps are the unions, are the sort of cooperatives and socialists who are actually using this as a way for people to come together. And Billy Butlin is very conscious of all these things when in the 1930s, he alights on the holiday camp as the way to make his big fortune. So he actually goes back to this Isle of Man camp, um, Cunningham's camp outside Douglas, and he tries to sneak in and see how they're doing the, the food for thousands of people in one sitting. And he goes and sees, you know, they've got their own kitchen gardens, they grow everything on site. And Butlin replicated a lot of things, these things. But he also really took note of that sense of community. And you know, he was looking to entertain so many people. He's creating holiday villages every week. So, you know, somewhere like Skegness opened in 1936. By 1939, I think it could accommodate four and a half thousand people every week. Now, that's a lot of people to come to this site fresh, not knowing anybody. So the whole point of setting up these houses in a kind of following the kind of boarding school 
model was to actually give people this shared sense of belonging. And so you met up, what what house are you in? And suddenly you've got this icebreaker. And, and that really continued through the 1960s and 70s. Holiday camps were still po- very popular in the 80s, but there were m- more options. And there's, they'd come to be seen as a kind of a cheaper holiday option and the reputation just wasn't there and the investment wasn't there. They'd grown too big, particularly Butlins. I mean, there were lots of family operators as well. Um, So there were holiday camps all over the place, but the allure was definitely wearing off by that point. And it took until kind of, I suppose, about the millennium and then a kind of renewed interest in the seaside. And you're getting Butlins reinvesting in their brand these days and going back to offering that all-in package. You pay your money and then when you get there, it's all laid on for you. Though, Steve, to revive them, presumably they need more health and safety regulations than they had back in your childhood. Well, it was absolutely spectacular. <laughs> I, I, I found this old video on, on the on, on the internet, um, and it just said, we used to go to a place called Gunton Hall. It said Gunton Hall, and it gave a date in the 70s. It, someone had done a home video, and there, my family were on it. You know, we were watching, I was watching myself as a, as a, as a teenager, and it was just outrageously dangerous, you know? I mean, the archery took place on an open field with proper bows and arrows, <laughs> right? And kids running around everywhere. You got onto the little lake and did paddling with no life vests. Um, the donkey derby was carnage, you know? I mean, you people were falling off, people were being trampled. And, and, All part of the and fun. looking back on it, I think it was just such a kind of... You know, I'm not saying we should breach health and safety, but we just didn't feel in peril. And I think that's one of the things I notice. You know, it's happened in the in the in the years since. Is we're so aware of risk, but in those kind of lovely halcyon days, we just got on and, and did stuff, and um, we all seemed to get through it okay, didn't we? I mean, you know, I survived yeah. the donkey derby. You know, exactly. I, I'm all right. I- I think that's a really interesting point as well, because people that I've spoken to who were kids who went to holiday camps really just cherished the idea that they could just leave their parents for a bit and run off and do their own thing. And there were all these activities to go and take part in. You could go to the the snooker hall and play there all day or just, you know, there were all these kids camps. So there was a sort of level of supervision, but then there were all these sporting activities. And like you said, you just got on with it and it was a safe space. I wanted to say the thing is, they're so right. But, you know, thinking about snooker, every time we went there, because it was a different kind of world, you know, we had like Ray Reardon used to come to our holiday camp and you could play snooker against him. We had people like, you know, Bert Whedon who played the guitar. And you were so close, you know, you could actually interact with these stars that you'd seen on television. I mean, these days you'd never get that close to people. You would absolutely never be able to play snooker, just if you met him, with Ronnie O'Sullivan. But in those days, we were able to kind of really, it just felt so natural. You know, the, the difference between, as it were, celebrity and ordinary people was much less marked. And actually, Steve, finally, um, from your article, you say that your dad lost his job and that's why you ended up at the holiday camp. But it sounds like it was a great bonding experience for you as the son. It was because, you know, my dad, he did. He, he was an East Ender and he left school without being able to read and write. He met my mum. My mum taught him to, to read and to write and he became really successful. I mean, we really had a charmed life until we were in our early teens. And then my dad lost his job. And so, you know, it was a terrible trauma. We were completely broke. But we could go to holiday camps, and I think me being with my dad, and my dad being with me, and we just, I just saw him in his in his best light, and um, seeing him again on, on that film, you know, I it it just brought him back to me, you know, and I was um 
I was so happy to see it, really. Steve, that's a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, and Catherine, thank you too. And that's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read Nicholas Coleridge's diary on Ghislaine Maxwell, Mary Wakefield on why your wedding's not about you, and Freddie Gray's verdict on Kamala Harris. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. <laughs>